This event that I'm going to be talking about didn't technically happen in Montana, but at the time, in 1860, when these events unfolded, Montana was a part of the Washington Territory, where part of the story happened. So I'm just stretching the parameters a little bit, the boundaries. And the other thing I want to say about this talk, it's part of a larger book project that I'm currently working on, and since the material is somewhat new to me, I'm going to actually be reading my paper today, which I know is not the ideal. It's much more exciting when people walk around and wave their arms and have many asides, but um, in order to be true to the story, and also because I use a lot of direct quotes from a journal, or I mean from a memoir, um, it's, it's just going to be a little bit better if I, I read directly. So just wanted to, to let you know that before I got started. Colonial outposts with unstable supply lines, famine brought on by failed crops, and war triggered early American catastrophes that led to cannibalism. The open ocean, rocky shoals, and uninhabited islands set the stage for cannibalism that arose from shipwrecks. Merciless winters, inadequate supplies, and miscommunication contributed to exploration's failures that precipitated violence and cannibalism. The Euro-Americans' relentless settlement westward both perpetuated and precipitated these types of tragic situations well into the 19th century, and the Oregon Trail was no exception. While most immigrants made the journey safely enough, there were a few that went horribly wrong. Prior to 1845, the overland journey produced few casualties. No doubt, the most notorious disaster happened on the trail to California during the winter of 1846 and 47, when the Donner Party was trapped in the mountains. Their terrible situation led to the death of 40, and the 47 survivors almost certainly resorted to cannibalism to survive. While most of the deaths on the trail arose from human error as more made the trip, increasing traffic and white encroachment led to tensions between natives and newcomers. The Whitman Massacre in 1847 and the Ward Massacre in 1854 led to calls for retaliation. For instance, after the Ward incident that left 19 dead, Brigadier General William S. Harney and 600 men attacked an encampment of Indians on the Platte River. They killed nearly 90 Indians and took almost as many women and children into captivity. Following this, White native relations remained unsettled, and violence on both sides increased. Military escorts for the immigrants became the norm on some sections of the trail. Into this tense atmosphere came the utter Van Ornum party in 1860. Two first-hand accounts of their journey survive. The first, Joseph Myers was from an interview he gave soon after his arrival in Walla Walla in early November 1860. The second account of what happened was published in 1892. Emmeline Fuller's work is called Left by the Indians, Story of My Life. She began the narrative by introducing her family. Emmeline's parents married in 1846 in Wisconsin. She was born in 1847 and was the oldest of three children. 
After her father died of typhoid fever in 1852, the family moved around a lot, staying with various relatives, until her mother married Elijah Utter in 1858. He already had six children. Her mother had a baby, making the family 12 altogether. After much discussion, Emmeline's parents decided to take the family to Oregon. Emmeline recalled that though she was only a girl of 13 years and with a heart untouched by cares, but bitterly did I cry over leaving home, and lonely, most lonely, were the first nights of camping and feeling that we were going further from home each day. Especially difficult for her was the image of her dear grandparents with tears streaming down their wrinkled faces as they said goodbye. The Utter family joined a party of wagons that would consist of um, eight of those contraptions and 44 people, 18 men, five women, and 21 children. For the most part, things went usually enough. The slow motion of the wagons churned cream in the butter barrels, and the prairie dogs' antics provided amusement. When they arrived at Fort Hall, near present-day Pocatello, they found that a company of soldiers had already gone ahead with another train, and that they would have to wait for their escort to get ready as they were headed into what was considered the most dangerous territory at that time. In the meanwhile, the commander at Fort Hall, Colonel Howe, requested that the women and girls come to the officer's tent for a dance. They refused, and he got so angry that he declared he would not send protection with their party. Realizing, however, that he had some duty for their safety, he changed his mind and sent them off with a reduced force of soldiers and with instructions to the men to turn around after a week. This would only take them about halfway through the usual distance of the escort. When the soldiers left them in eastern Idaho, the group was joined by four more three discharged soldiers, and a bugler who had deserted his company. Over the next few days, the travelers noticed Indians watching them, which made them extremely anxious. And one evening, three men and two women approached their camp. Emmeline noticed that, quote, the leader among them must have been a white man, as his dress and appearance was different from the rest. He had a beard, and you could see plainly that he was painted, quote. They lingered around camp and did not leave until the men of the party had asked them to multiple times. Over the next few weeks, the intruders returned several times, making the emigrants very nervous. It was now early September. On September 9th, the harassers returned, this time with nearly 100 Shoshone and Bannock warriors. The immigrants corralled the wagons as quickly as possible, but not before three men from the party were killed. The immigrants fought the Indians all afternoon and into the night. They made the decision to abandon their wagons in hopes that the attackers only wanted their provisions. In the chaos that ensued, some of the single men escaped. And so this map here um, shows you the location of the attack and then where the rest, most of the rest of this story will unfold. What happened next remained seared 
in Emmeline's mind. She watched her stepsister and stepfather drop by shots. Her mother refused to run, crying that she could not leave her husband and that they were all doomed. Torn between leaving her family and saving her own life, Emmeline chose to run. She wrote, I took one last lingering look at my mother's dear face and taking my poor little baby sister in my arms and telling four of the little brothers and sisters to follow me, I started. I knew not whither, but with the one hope of getting away from the wretches who seemed to thirst for the blood of every one of us." End quote. She turned back to encourage her mother, two stepsisters, and stepbrothers by the wagon to follow, and saw them all shot dead. She remembered, quote, I felt then that all that I held dear on earth was dependent upon my feeble care, and child as I was, I nerved myself for that terrible struggle for life, which I could see was before me." End quote. <clears throat> Emma Lyman asked the reader of the narrative to consider her situation. In mere hours, she had gone from child to caretaker of five siblings, including a babe in arms. Not only that, she was ignorant of her surroundings, had no real wilderness skills, was inadequ inadequately clothed for the cool fall weather, and terrified that the attack would continue. She then continued her story. What was left of her family joined with the other survivors and headed to the river, compelled to move on by thirst, despite their fear. They walked along the river that night and hid in the willows the next day. The children cried for their parents and for bread but Emmeline had nothing for them. At dusk, three Indians rode nearby yelling and shooting off their guns. They continued to do this the next three evenings. On the fourth day, they rested below a cliff and the Indians rolled rocks down on them. No one was hit and they continued along the river once it was full dark. The stress on the group mounted. Emmeline asked the reader, you will perhaps wonder what we could get to eat. Well, we got so hungry during the third night's travel that we killed our faithful family dog that had shared our hardships through all that long journey. We also killed Mr. Van Ornum's, roasted and ate some of the meat and carried the rest along for future use." End quote. They traveled on until they reached the site of Old Fort Boise on the Hawaii River where they were lucky to shoot a stray cow. At this point, Emmeline inventoried their situation. She estimated they had journeyed over 100 miles since the attack and abandoning the wagons. All who had regrouped after leaving the wagons remained alive, although the cold and hunger had taken their toll and most of their shoes had worn to pieces. Mr. Myers, whose whole family remained intact, felt near collapse and begged the rest not to abandon him. Heeding his pleas, they made a more permanent camp along the riverbank and hoped for rescue. Sometime later, Emmeline's brother, Christopher, age 11, who she sometimes called Christy, and another man set out the 200 miles for Fort Walla Walla for help. On the way, they encountered three of the single men who had escaped, but who had wandered lost before finding the proper trail again. Christy returned to the river camp with the news and some horse meat, 
and the four others continued to the fort for help. Soon after this, Christie ran into an Indian down by the river. The Indian indicated that Christie should go to his camp, but the boy explained that he had his own. Soon after the encounter, the Indian with four companions came to their camp with fish. The Im immigrants exchanged clothes and guns for more fish, and the Indians demonstrated they wanted Christie to go back with them and that they would come back in three days. The boy went with them, fearful that they would get mad at the rest if he didn't go. The Van Ornum family were so fearful of the Indians, they decided not to wait for rescue and left. The, party, uh, the Van Ornum party consisted of uh, husband, wife, two sons, three daughters, Mr. Gleason, and Charles and Henry Utter, two of Emmeline's brothers. Three days later, as promised, the Indians came back with more fish and Christie in tow. Emmeline recalled, quote, Mr. Chase ate so much of it that he was taken with the hiccups and died. We, we buried him, but the Indians dug him up, took his clothes, and buried him again. The next to die was one of Emmeline's sisters. She said, my poor sister Libby, nine years old, used to help me gather buffalo chips for fuel and rosebuds and other things to eat. She and I went to gather fuel as usual one morning and she was tugging along with all she could carry and fell behind. I carried mine into camp and went back to meet her. I called her by name and she made no answer. Soon I found her and I said, Libby, why did you not answer? She said, I could not talk, I felt too bad. And before night, she was dead. After this, Emmeline's emotional and physical state worsened. One day, while she was collecting fuel, the Indians came to camp with Christy. The whites began asking the boy about the location of the Indian camp so that when the soldiers came to rescue them, they would know where to find him. But as soon as the Indians heard the word soldiers spoken, to each, they talked among themselves and went away taking Christy with them again. Later that day, Emmeline heard a loud snarling noise in the distance. She would find out from Mr. Myers, who went to investigate, that after going back to their camp, the Indians killed Christy, pulled up stakes, and left his body to the wolves that lingered around their camp. Clearly upon hearing the word soldier, the Indians feared they would become victims, missing the nuance in the White's conversation. After hearing the news from Mr. Myers, Emmeline despaired. Quote, words cannot describe my feelings as I heard of his horrible fate. I knew then that the noise which I had heard that day was my poor brave Christie, whom I had loved so well. I thought I had passed through all the suffering that I could endure, and God knows how I longed to lie down and be at rest, but it was not to be so, nor had I drained the cup to the dregs yet. Hunger dominated her thoughts, and she wrote, None but those who endured the awful pangs of starvation can have even a faint idea of such horrible suffering and death. We became almost frantic. Food we must have, but how should we get it? Then an idea took possession of our minds, which we could not even mention to each other. 
so horrid, so revolting to even think of. But the awful madness of hunger was upon us, and we cooked and ate the bodies of each of the poor children. First, Sister Libby, then Mr. Chase's little boys, and next my darling little baby sister, whom I carried in my arms through all the long dreary journey, who I had slept with and hugged to my heart as though if possible, I could shield her from all danger. She too had to leave me. Although Emmeline had done everything in her power to nourish the baby, it was not enough. And the two nursing women in the group could not or would not share with Emmeline's sister for fear of depriving their own babies. Emmeline sorrowed. For over 40 days I had carried her, but had to give her up at last and I was left alone. All who had depended upon me had been taken away, except the two stepbrothers who got, had gone on and we heard nothing. At this point, having eaten all the newly dead, they dug up Mr. Chase's corpse, intending to eat that as well. But thank God, relief came. The sight of rescuers stopped them in their task. But the soldiers brought bad news. Their friends who had left the campsite had died violently. They had found the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Van Ornum, Mr. Gleason, and her stepbrothers, Charles and Henry. The four Van Ornum children, three girls and one boy, had disappeared, presumed kidnapped. Emmeline was out gathering fuel when the soldiers arrived in camp. She remembered that she was so worn out by grief and starvation that she barely felt joy, the, the joy that one might expect. My heart, she wrote, was so benumbed by my terrible suffering that I hardly cared. I was alone in the world and had suffered enough in the past few months to change me from a light-hearted child into a broken-hearted woman. Other records suggest similar apathy amongst the survivors. Indian agent George Abbott, who met the survivors a week after they had been found, said none of them appeared to have the intelligence or mental strength of a child of even three years old. Emmeline recalled that nary a soldier had a dry eye upon seeing the skeletal survivors, but she barely cared when the soldiers offered her a biscuit. It would take her some time to regain her appetite. The soldiers prepared the group for travel to Fort Walla Walla, giving them blankets for clothes and making litters for those too weak to travel. The smallest children rode in their saddlebags. A few days after setting off, supply wagons from the fort met the party, bringing food, clothes, and a more comfortable place to ride. Two months had passed since their ordeal began. Out of the 44 at the start, 11 died the first two days of the attack. In the Van Ornum breakaway group, all five adults died. Of the four children kidnapped, only one was found and rescued from the Shoshone two years later. Of the people camped at the river, five died, four of them children. The survivors ate them all. Of the 12 members of her family, Emmeline was the only one left. After arriving at the fort, Emmeline stayed there until a cousin from Salem came for her. She went on to have a long and interesting life. She died in 1923, was married three times, 
fostered many children, and lived all over the country. But the events on the Oregon Trail haunted her. She mourned the loss of her family and felt that no one could really understand how she felt. Permanent injuries to her feet from not having shoes during those cold days served as a reminder of the terrible events. In many ways, Emmeline's story mimics captivity narratives, a genre of writing that came out of the colonial period. Traditionally, captivity narratives served two purposes. To demonstrate the power of Christian faith to sustain people in troubled times, and to reinforce the idea of Indian savagery. Both were useful themes in terms of the settler colonial agenda. Like these earlier narratives, there is some question about whether Emmeline actually wrote the memoir herself, or if a second party recorded the story for her. Either way, Left by the Indians provides a vivid account of what happened in 1860. Her survival story provides ample evidence to explore aspects of the settler period, such as the contradiction in calling native people savages and descriptions of immigrants eating babies in the same work, or how remembering these stories from the white perspective contributes to a celebratory interpretation of the past, or how the word massacre has been used to describe native attacks on whites, but not the other way around. Emmeline never mentioned that after her ordeal, there were reprisals against the Shoshone and Bannock. And of course, in the rest of the 19th century, the US Army killed hundreds of native people and forced survivors onto reservations. But I also think it's interesting to take a step back and think for a minute about Emmeline as an individual. I'm struck by her description of leaving her dear grandparents, whom she doesn't expect to ever see again. The enormous responsibility that fell upon her to care for her siblings in an impossible situation and to lose them all. The heartbreaking description of her sister Libby's last day and the death of the baby she couldn't feed. We also know from her memoir that along with assuming the duties of both mother and father to her siblings, she collected food and did laundry for others in the camp. And while not explained in the text, one has to wonder if butchering and cooking the meat fell on her shoulders too. In a final note in the narrative, Emmeline remarked, God knows best, I shall meet my dear ones some sweet day in that beautiful heaven beyond. It is here that the voice of Emmeline comes through and seems to say that only in death and once again reunited with her dear family members lost in 1860 will she find happiness and rest. Thank you.